everybody, we hope you understand that this episode will contain spoilers. And while we do encourage you to watch these movies prior to listening to our podcast, be aware that we will look to make some important discoveries such as Soul and Green is made of guava. What's in the box? A small mouse wearing a hat. Kaiser Soze is actually a delicious Austrian bread. John Wick is overrated. That's not even a spoiler, alright? I'll that fight you. can go to hell. Welcome to Expositions. Tonight's episode is brought to you by The Great Taste of Act Utilitarianism, the beer that argues that a person's actions are only morally right if they make as much happiness as any other action that person could have taken. Brewed by master craftsmen Jeremy Panopticon Bentham and John Stuart Egghead Mill, it defines happiness as pleasure and the absence of pain, and is available in stores now for the low, low price of $14.95. Act Utilitarianism. It'll get you laid. What's what's what what store is this available in? <laughs> um, all, America, America, all that, of all, all, all of America. America. You store. can you can go to the bathroom at your local gas station and uh, look around. You might find it somewhere in there, specifically in there. No, no, you can you can just go to the country and ask people for some, and uh, they'll just kind of like hand it out. I mean, you have to pay the fourteen ninety five, but uh, I think it's worth it. Is is it worth your life? Because for some people, uh, asking around in America without knowing where you're at might cost <laughs> your life. So, yeah. I thought you meant like, <laughs> I thought or, you meant or like, a give, me, liver. Give, me, give me death. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that, uh, now that you mentioned that, yeah, yeah. Give me liberty <laughs> or give me death, you should say. I see what you did there and I don't approve. Well, you never approve. <laughs> but that's what Expositions is about. Young, how you doing, man? I'm well. I'm well. I, uh, I'm currently recording this from Montreal. So but, uh, you're basically just a nomad because you're in like three different cities for three different weeks now. And um, mm-hmm. I feel like next week you're just going to be in like Manitoulin somewhere. I like to think of myself as more of a, a Ronin. So uh, really, I just go where the Shogun wants me. <laughs> you are also the <laughs> man who has an MMA in film literature. Uh, let's not forget that. <laughs> Uh, and you're joined by me, the man who puts ass in class. The ass in class? The ass in class. Uh, yes. Yes. Because there, there is only one ass known as Rakush. See what I did there as well? You know. Very I do. Singular, I do. Very, very singular about that. Maybe that beer <laughs> is for me. I don't know. Jan. You know, you know I, I like to think sometimes that I'm a good judge of people's characters. And one of the things that I like to do is kind of listen to how a person talks, right? And I can hear, like, minor things that tell me how happy a person is. Like, they're talking with a smile on their face. They're chuckling a little bit. You know, you, you feel like they're holding back joy, not trying to just, like, choke everybody with it sort of thing. Do you know where I'm going with this? Like, do you, do you just know it's, how it's, somebody's it's, happy sometimes? Like, it, it's, it's, it's almost like Christmas for those people you know is this going to be a lead-in to how i chose one movie that makes you really happy and one movie that makes you really sad well yeah i guess it is <laughs> I, I, I guess it is kind of like you know the, the christmas season and then like going back to work in january you know this is not a christmas themed episode this is actually a very violent episode it's um, kind, of, kind of more like santa and the krampus 
like I gave you both, so you have to deal with both. One of yeah, them is like this jolly guy, and the other just like flogs you and put you in a sack. <laughs> but what if what if Krampus was the jolly guy? Is all I'm saying. And I think I think that's actually a decent way to introduce Inspector Tequila from what might be my favorite movie of all time. And thank you for picking this because to the listeners who don't know what we do is we pick two movies and Jan decided that this week one of the movies we're going to talk about is Hard Boiled. And <laughs> thank you. Fucking thank we you. Should, we should probably say say up front that uh, by, by means of uh, trying to be open about all of this that I think this is your favorite movie. I just mentioned that this is my uh, favorite movie in, of all in time. general, though. Like just of in general, time. not yes. favorite. Time. Okay, all time, and all um, time. and also that we're probably not. We're gonna we're gonna be pretty cavalier about the spoilers because <laughs> both the movies we've been talk we're gonna talk about have, are at least twenty years old. Well, yeah. So, uh, also just, keep know, in mind that we're this is that. yeah, and this is the third episode now. People should know by now that we're not talking about these movies without spoilers. Um, these are sometimes new, sometimes old. You know, whatever we feel like talking on the, any given week. Um, but yeah, this is, these episodes are more to, they're more for the person who has watched these movies. And it's, it's that one guy who is, or or girl who's looking to talk about these films, but has nobody to discuss it with, you know, and we're hoping to give people this avenue. And I hope I find more people who love Hurt Boiled as much as I do, Jan, because let me tell you, I fucking love this film. To the point where normally when we write down notes for films, in this one I've watched it so many times, I didn't even bother with the notes. Like, I just have (laughs) multiple pages worth of movie trivia for this. Which, when we get into, holy shit, are you going to love some of the things that kind of happen behind the scenes and, you know, stuff like that. But before we get into that, Jan, what is Hard Boiled for the listener who has not watched Hard Boiled? Alright, so Hard Boiled is a 1992 Hong Kong action movie directed by John Woo and starring Chow Yun-Fat as Tequila Yuan. And um, it's basically, it's a story about, there's a, a well, a hard-boiled, <laughs> hard-boiled uh, police guy, and he's decided to take down this gang, and um, he has to team up with, eventually, they sort of uncover this plot and then team up with um, another guy who happens to be a police informant working inside the gang. And he doesn't know that the guy's an informant, has to discover all this. Um, the informant, named Alan, by the way, played by the magnificent yeah. Tony Long. Yeah he's, yeah, he's really good in it, too. Really fucking um, good. Actually, I think, like, everyone kind of is. Yeah, um, yeah. You, ha- you sort of have to, you have to accept that it's just, it's a Hong Kong action movie, and you have to know that genre. Um but in the parts, I think everyone is, is great. So I think we need to also preface, or I guess post this. I don't know what the word is for that. Uh, we should also <laughs> mention um, it's post not fish. yeah post post yeah. It's not just a Hong Kong action film. It's a Hong Kong action film by John Woo, who really defined Hong Kong action for much of the '90s and mid '80s yeah. as well with his films. And this entire episode today is going to be dedicated to two John Woo films that. You know, their conflicting feelings about it, which we'll get to shortly. Um, maybe longer than shortly, because we got a lot to talk about with Hard Boiled. Um, but the point is that he is one of my favorite directors. This is my favorite film. And I just kind of want to always talk about how influential it is. Just the things that make it awesome. Uh, the things that John Woo's films usually contain. What makes John Woo films awesome. Um 
one thing we should mention that this is the last Hong Kong John Woo film from the 90s before he made the comeback, you know, in the mid 2000s, late 2000s. For a later episode, though, that stuff is for a later episode. Um, Right now, we're talking about this film, which uh, really propelled him to, you know, the Western stardom that he hoped to get, right? And uh, because immediately the the following year after this was made, he uh, he went to Hollywood to start directing. Yes. Um, Again, we'll get to that shortly. I, I do have a little bit of a difficulty talking about this movie sometimes, though, full disclosure, because there is just so much that I want to just, I'm like a kid in a candy store, right? And like, I come back from the candy store, I'm talking to my friends, and I'm like, man, they had like this and this and this, and like, I don't know where to start with it. So I guess we'll oh, start. Actually, yeah, you, you, actually, I have, I have a good place to begin. Let, let's, do um, it. let's do it. I think uh, it's inter- the reason that we're talking about this movie is that it's interesting, not just because of the fact that it's a good movie or that it defined Hong Kong action movies, but also this movie and John Woo sort of influenced, whether you like it or not, it influenced movies like, but well, it's still, it still is. It's uh, he's a director who you can still feel yeah. in movies. Yeah. And he is very much a Tarantino type of director, not in the, the eccentric way that Tarantino usually does his films, I should say. Um, but in a way that you can always kind of see their signature, I guess, their stamp on films. Uh, and there's many tropes that come out of these films, you know, and what John Woo, some of the tropes are obviously like the dual wielding uh, protagonist, the the protagonist who kind of shreds the line between good and bad carefully, you know, that's where a lot of like this, well, that's why Hardball is a very fitting title as well, right? Because in many ways, it's a fitting title for a lot of his films, because in a lot of his films, the characters are just like, you know, they're not completely good or completely bad, at least with the Hong Kong films. And uh, in this case, Inspector Tequila is probably just treading that line the most, carefully out of like all of his characters ever really because it straight up starts this this movie starts off in a tea shop and before actually before i get that famous, i should say famous scene too famous scene i mean there's this entire movie should be famous like calling yeah. it famous is kind of an understatement at this point um but it, it before any of that also it actually starts off with like you know this the shot of a guy pouring himself a drink and then like, you know, just kind of like smashing it on the table, not like smashing the glass or anything, but like shaking it by doing so. And he's playing like jazz in this bar and stuff. And like the title hardball just kind of like races on screen and Holy fuck. Like, honestly, when I was watching this movie, I was kind of like for this episode, I was kind of debating if I wanted to come into this blind and see how much I remember from the last viewing, which wasn't really that long ago, probably a few months ago. Um, but I kind of wanted to try that. And then as soon as I saw like that title card, I was like, no, nah, I got to fucking watch this entire movie now. Like I can't, <laughs> yeah. I can't ignore this anymore. Um, it, it's just like, you know, after all these movies, like John Woo, Chai and Fat, they don't fuck around. They're just like, you guys know what we do at this point, right? Like, it's just from a different perspective this time. Instead of the, instead of the crook, it's the cop. Um, but the cop is, again, still treading that line very carefully. And it, it then it goes into this tea shop, you know, and it has, like, your typical John Woo action bits, like the dual-wielding cop. Um, like, you know, in fact, there is a flying bird in this already. Um, yep. And there's... <laughs> 
there's just already about this scene there's so much that's fucking legendary to me because this scene actually was shot before they even had a script for this film that's your first bit of trivia for this movie by the way uh the tea house scene shot before they even kind of had a final idea what this movie was going to be because this movie actually started off as a very different plot um also john woo not a guy for scripts apparently and he was just like no 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 fuck this right like for most of the things that they do in this film and for this one here the action itself uh giant fat actually improvised uh this iconic scene of him like sliding slash walking down the stairs like double yeah. gun shooting <laughs> like that is totally improvised apparently um they obviously really? did multiple shots because they have different angles of it but i assume like he just did that on one take and they're like fucking brilliant and that's that's honestly what a lot of this movie is like you know it's just this discourse between chai and fat and john woo and in many ways to me it is also a chai and fat film as well not just the john woo film because yeah. at this point they have such a rapport with each other that they're just bouncing ideas off each other and they're like yay this is fucking good this is great like there are massive changes made based off like chai and fat's like opinion on the film or like you know just yeah like general opinions on stuff and it's it's nuts man and to start off a movie like that with insane bloodshed and to cap that scene off uh i use cap intentionally because this guy just caps a dude right in the temple with a bullet, right? But the great thing is he's covered in flour at this point because they've gone into, I guess, like the kitchen area or like the storage area of the tea room. Uh, yeah, he gets covered. Kitchen. Yeah, and like he gets covered in flour. So he looks like this fucking like pale white ghost. Literally looks like a ghost, right? And like he's holding a gun to a dude's temple, shoots him. And just blood splurges right fucking out. And, like, it is just the perfect way to cap that scene. And I probably, like, I could talk about this entire movie in such colorful detail because it's that fucking brilliant. Uh, I, I will try not to do that for all the scenes, all right? But this scene, it's just, like, you watch this and you can't not watch the rest of the film. Like, it just, like, they fucking tell you, like, this is what this movie's gonna be. Yeah. And, and I think uh, I think one of the one thing that those two sequences do brilliantly, and the reason that I like them, like in conjunction with another with one another, as a setup for the rest of the film, is they set the tone of the film perfectly. Exactly. Like with with those two scenes, you know exactly what you're getting yourself into. And what I also and that's love, really hard to do. Yeah, and what I also love is, I mean, they introduce you to Tequila, his um, co-officers you know, things like that, his boss. Um, so yeah, like, you know, they do that. And then at the same time, they also have a scene with Tony Lung where they introduce him and he's more of like this suave guy, this very uh, in control person, or so it seems on first sight, right? And like, he walks into this library and it's just like this cool scene where he's always in control of everything. He's unfazed by anything that happens. And it's this perfect contrast between like the grittiness of Inspector Tequila and Alan. And, you know, it, it just sets everything up so beautifully for like, this this amazing amazing film you know and like i i will run out of superlatives and i think i've already run out of superlatives <laughs> already for this movie this early in the episode um no more hyperbole <laughs> right right but yeah so like you know it's just a lot of this film has moments like this you know where the, and the thing is it's not just like they start off and the gun like you know they pull the trigger right off the bat um there is still a little bit of tension building and that actually comes from john woo's love of jean-pierre melville um apologies if i pronounce the names incorrectly um i'm pretty sure that's melville but i couldn't say it in you know the right order 
your silence makes me very nervous there. I no, was I'm hoping you would say, oh, no, no, out. that's okay, that's okay. But no, you didn't. Um, it's, well, I'm just trying to figure out what the French pronunciation would be. If it's Melville, but it's pronounced French, it's probably like... Melville. I assume it's Melville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's say Jean-Pierre Melville. Um, he has been a big influence on John Woo's career to the point where John Woo actually wrote a fascinating sort of like essay as a tribute to him in uh, this November 1996 French journal called Cahier du Cinema. Uh, this this essay, I don't want to get into too much right now uh, because I want to see, if, you know, a lot of these quotes for future episodes and for maybe a movie we talk about later as well. But the idea is that he is very heavily inspired by Melvillian characters, Melvillian films. And they build a tension and he always talks about how much he loves the tension that is built in Melville Melville's films. And you can kind of see that here as well, you know, just within minutes, they kind of set up this very tense moment where you know something's going to happen, but you're not quite sure how it's going to go down. And when it goes down, you're like, oh my fucking God, like this happened sort of thing. And yeah, it's just, really... yeah, it's just like this kind of brilliance is actually there throughout the film. And when you see that structure and you understand where he's taken his inspirations from for a lot of these things... Uh, and this is why I also compared him to Tarantino in that the more you watch this movie and the more you realize how much is a tribute to, you know, past films or how much is a tribute to his icons or, you know, things like that, you really get a sense of appreciation for just where the director's mindset is also um, in that, like, you know, he never forgets where he came from, but he also never forgets where films came from. And I really appreciate that about John Woo's film. Hardball definitely has a lot of that as well. It's just coated in way more blood than any of his other films ever, really. And that's what makes it fantastic. Um, yeah, I have been talking it's, it's for a such while. A celebration. It's such a celebration of violence. Yeah. Um, celebration is a great choice a, of words, actually. I, and I have been talking like, for a while, so I kind of want to get your opinion on the scenes well, in this the, film as well. Well, the, I mean, a good indication of what the movie's like is in, like the term pistol ballet was invented to describe <laughs> John Woo films. Like, yeah. There, there are going to be dudes spinning around shooting guys. And there's going to be blood everywhere, and it's going to be great. <laughs> so one thing uh, John Woo has often said that to him, a, like an action scene is very much a dance. Uh, and the reason I appreciate that line of thinking is because a lot of the 70s martial arts films also very much had that feeling of like you're not just watching an action film but you're watching performance you're watching um a dance a ballet like you know it is just this yeah. beautifully choreographed thing and what john woo did is he made beautiful choreography out of a very plain um albeit devastating action of just pulling a trigger and that's where like gun fu also kind of came into play like you know just with movies that yeah. john woo worked on uh is that they were just shot so beautifully and they were just handled with a sense of grace that you normally didn't see in these kind of films um he always talks about making them elegant you know and like not sophisticated, but like, you know, just a clean sort of film. And there are other movies that do show that clean element a lot more, but you can still see that in Hard Boiled as well. You know, it it definitely has all the typical John Woo uh, film tropes that you would expect and love. Like, you know, it's not like just because they're tropes, you're going to fucking hate them because they happen in every film. They are there for a good reason as well. One thing that I really appreciated um, the most recent time that I watched it too was that just sort of speaking of, because I mean, it's you can see where he's talking, what he means when he's talking about putting a shot together like it's ballet or dance. 
But um, at the same time, they're, they, they don't, like, it's, it's very violent, too. They don't pull any punches. And one thing I noticed the most recent time that I watched it is it's very, very, very rare that someone will get shot once. Usually, like, they get shot six times. Like, every every person in the movie. And there are dozens and dozens and dozens of people yeah. who die in this movie. Yeah. Like, it's so rare that someone just gets shot once. Usually, they're just sprayed with bullets and if it's an important <laughs> character you'll also notice that it's not a slow-mo shot as much but like they will hold on to that shot or like you know they'll edit it together to create like this moment for important characters getting shot because it has drama right like you're seeing this guy like one bullet they might survive but like five bullets they're fucking dead you think they're dead yeah. right and it's intentional like all of that is well thought out there is a method behind the madness it's, it's actually just like fantastic in that sense you know and um yeah like you know just oh my goodness like you know, it's funny you were you're talking about uh comparing a uh, john Woo to tarantino yeah I, I think this is going to be three movies in a row where i've compared something to like a really highbrow director or movie well, so this what might... i was thinking well what i was thinking when you're talking about how he didn't like to work with scripts is i'm pretty sure there's a Werner herzog quote where he's some it's something like i don't like to work with scripts i think they're for cowards <laughs> I think we might have to break this action movie rule to do some Horner Herzog films in the future, but uh, just because he he himself sounds like the most insane human being, that it might be fascinating. But let's get back to John Woo. Um, there is there is so much to talk about just the script itself, but um, we mentioned that there will be spoilers, obviously, but uh, we'll we'll kind of save that for the trivia. I don't want to give too much away just yet. I do want to talk about the performances. We already mentioned you know Chai and Fat. Uh, we mentioned Tony Long. Uh, John Woo's also in this movie. Uh, actually, he's I, I think he's a nice addition to the film just because in, you know, retrospect, you can kind of like sit back now, watch these films and appreciate it because it is his last film in Hong Kong. That like, you know, this the scene exists, right? That like you can sit there and kind of reminisce about the killer. You can reminisce about A Better Tomorrow, uh, Bullets of the Head, Hardboiled. You know, you can reminisce about these films because of this these scenes, you know, where he's just talking with Chai and Fat. And I love that stuff, you know, because they have worked for so long at that point that it's great to see this uh, relationship come on, like, you know, stay on screen. And another bit of trivia about the John Woo scenes, by the way, uh, they shot that with, uh, a script and everything within an hour and a half like <laughs> nice. they probably just came up with the idea they're like hey why don't we do this and they're like yeah yeah sure let's do this and that's basically how a lot of this film was actually done um we will get back to <laughs> that improvisation though. quite a bit later on because i think that's actually a big part of john Woo's filmmaking style as well i do also want to give a lot of credit to uh the man who played johnny wong he was actually, uh, you know, kind of going back to our first episode when we talked about uh, Baron Zemo being kind of the glue that holds things together, right? Yeah, Johnny, John, Wong Johnny Wong would be the main bad guy in this movie. He is the main bad really guy. Dumb. Yeah. And like he is way more evil. <laughs> let's just say that. Um, <laughs> but also he he really just ties things together very well, you know, and. He is an ambitious character, um, unlike, you know, not unlike a lot of the characters that you do see in John Woo films as well. Like, these character tropes are very similar, but at the same time, I think you have to appreciate the performances for keeping them fresh, you know, for as long. And that, like, they don't age as badly. You can still kind of go back and appreciate it for its time. And I think, like, you know, you can truly appreciate that from everybody in this movie, you know? And, yeah, just, like, credit to them. Uh, I also kind of want to talk about a legendary human being uh, goes by the name of 
Philip Quack. Uh, Philip Quack is. Oh man, yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, we He's mentioned... so fun to watch in this movie. Yes. He's so fun to watch. So Philip Quack is Mad Dog. He is uh, the strong man for Johnny Wong. He's a strong man that didn't exist when Johnny Wong was the only bad guy in this film. Um, now here's a little bit of context to Philip Wap's career. Philip Quack's career. Sorry. In the '70s, he was part of a legendary group of martial artists, actors uh, known as the Venom Mob. He was actually in uh, the Five Deadly Venoms, which is one of the classics of you know uh, old martial arts films. Uh, John Woo was such a fan of those films that when he brought him on as an action coordinator, he was also like b- because there is no hard script, he was just like. Yeah, fuck it. You can be in the movie too, and so he's added to the movie as sort of like you know the, uh, the right hand man for Johnny Wong, and they also work really well. And you know he just has one moment of sort of like this internal conflict, and it's literally like you know just maybe two minutes long, but it's so well handled for those two minutes. Yeah, you know, like there is no like massive build up for this monumental payoff to the character or anything like that. It just all happens very quick and dirty in the midst of this amazing firefight in the in the end at the hospital right like it's just it's another character i think you could see like there was little tiny bits like you could see them plant the seeds of doubt in his mind but i think the thing that was really interesting to me was that he just well he's not he looks like he's going to be a completely evil crazy character but you can see that he had he just has that internal line that he won't cross and then Johnny Wong does cross the line, and he, and Mad Dog's like, "Whoa, what the hell?" Exactly, and like, I th- I found that really interesting for the character. Yeah, and the, the way the kind of work about this is also that it's not a very obvious sort of uh, questioning the morality of the situation sort of thing. I mean, they're fucking hiding guns in a hospital, right? Like, you can't be really truly a good guy when you're letting that sort of stuff happen. But I think the way they handle it is that he doesn't question the morality of Johnny Wong as much as he questions the decision-making of Johnny Wong, you know? And it still is up for debate, and to me at least, whether he is upset that for a logical reason or if he's upset for more of a moral reason. And that also yeah. kind of goes hand-in-hand with the treading the line of good and bad sort of thing, right? Um even Johnny Wong, like, at least, like, as far as his ambitions are concerned, he doesn't always come across as, like, this evil sociopathic kind of guy, right? Like, he when he's talking, you do kind well, of... Well... I mean, I mean look, there, there look. is... Okay, this is this is a definite spoilers, but there <laughs> is kind of one moment near the end where he says something along the lines of, and now the innocent must die. Well, yes, of course, <laughs> yes. But that is the end. I feel like before you get to that point... There is still okay, this, okay, okay, like you know, fair. there is still the character development that needs to happen before you know you're hit with that, right? Like everybody and their fucking mom knows that it's going to happen. It's just a matter of what do you see before that happens, and I think that's yeah. what the impressive thing is with Johnny Wong in that film. Um, unfortunately, I don't remember the actor's name. I do apologize uh, of all the things that I do know about the film. This is the one thing I wasn't able to look up, um, just because I forgot. Let's be honest here. You know, we we work on an honesty basis. We don't want to. Lie to our listeners, you know. <laughs> Speaking of cold hard facts, do you want to get into the trivia for this? Actually, there's one thing I want to ask before we get into that. Okay. And also, <laughs> I, know, I know you have a couple quotes that you want to use for these movies. I also have my favorite quote oh, of the movie. I don't, no, here's the um, thing. I don't have any quotes but, from the movie. I have just quotes about them, you know, just oh, okay. general stuff. Before I get into that, though, uh, I want to ask, yeah. what is your favorite John Woo trope? 
Favorite John Woo trope? Um, I can tell you what mine is right off the bat. Let me guess. It's, How it's, about we guess each other's? I think I think your favorite trope is the uh, flying doves. Nope. No. Oh, okay. It's the uh, the John Woo shotgun rule. Yeah. Which is like the Jackie Chan ladder rule. Yeah. Which is whenever anyone gets a shotgun, things are gonna go bad. Can explode. Yes. Yes. It's, it's a it's fantastic like, rule. It's, I love how completely unrealistic in every way it is yeah. because they just basically they just they put a shotgun in the scene and they're like this is going to be our excuse to do really pretty things with explosions. Yeah, it's so it's a guy like turn into a hallway, fire a shotgun, and the ceiling and both walls will explode. <laughs> just to, so just fun. to give people a bit of context on just how violent and classily violent i should say this movie is there is an entire sequence in the middle of the film that i mean as fantastic as it is i i kind of don't even feel the need to talk about it because the other action sequences will already sort of like cover all the grounds for it right but it exists and there's just so much more in that that i could go on and on about as well it's just fucking nuts like everything about this film man like it's just packed with this insane shit and because you mentioned shotguns i kind of want to go back to uh, not go back but go to this scene in the middle in like sort of this uh shipping area like yeah the warehouse (laughs) where fucking everything goes kaboom man and like it's the greatest it's the greatest fucking thing and i kind of like that trope i do like that trope my favorite i think would have to be the two guns um it's okay yeah yeah it is such a stylish sort of like execution of things like that. Uh, for those who don't know the two guns thing, I, I, I would actually say this kind of goes hand in hand with the Mexican standoff as well, uh, which again happens in a lot of his films because yeah. uh, they're just like stylish. They kind of fit his style so perfectly. There's specific shots that he has for them. Uh, and you always know it's coming. Like, kind of like wrestling. You kind of have an idea, right? But... You it's still want to fucking see watch, it. Though. Yeah, you still want to yeah. fucking see it. And you're like, yeah, it happened sort of thing. Uh, take this from a guy who watches a lot of wrestling. You know, <laughs> shit's predictable, but you can kind of tell. And you kind of still want to see it. It's fantastic. Um, you ready? You, okay, okay, okay. Any do other you questions? Hear my favorite, yeah, do you want to hear my favorite quote? What's your favorite quote? My favorite quote is, get those babies to a safe place. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> Okay, um, I distinctly remember seeing a DVD cover for this film back in the day that had the tagline, gun in one hand, baby in other. Oh, man, yeah. Which is fantastic. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, I want to go into the trivia real quick because I also want to yep. do, not real quick, we're going to be in this for a while because there is a lot yeah, of stuff. Uh, I want to start off with the death toll in this film, and I kind of want to... <laughs> Do our segment for this week with this as well. First off, Jan, how many people do you think died in this movie? Oh my god, total? Yeah, that's got to be in that's got to be in the hundreds. Um, that's, be that's more ambitious. Be, seriously? Yeah, like three hundred and seven total deaths in this film. Now, out of the three hundred, yeah, I, can, I yeah. can see that. Yeah. yeah, I can see that. So I, I'm gonna ask you this: your top three kills in this movie? Oh man. I mean, it's fun seeing Mad Dog die. Yeah. He's, he's got a good death. I mean, I, f- um, I feel like it's a very unsatisfying death for your Mad Dog himself. But yeah, I can I, kind that's of... kind of why I like it, though. It's 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 such an ignoble death. Like, there's nothing... He doesn't celebrate it in any way. And you expect that there's going to be this huge showdown yeah. between him and, like, uh, and Chai Fat and Tony Lung. And he's just like... 
he's just kind of like casually shot by someone else. Well, I mean, it, it does happen. I kind of like that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also happening right after the scene where he is sort of in a shootout with Alan. Right. And yeah, it, it I, I do like the, like the quickness of that situation. I do appreciate just how, again, to repeat myself, it was quick and dirty. And yeah, I like that. Two more, two more. Give me two more. There's so many to choose from. There's 300 and something to choose from. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to say uh, Johnny Wong. Because, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, because I I do like that one. But I think given <laughs> given everything that happened, I'd have to go through the movie again and watch every single death. Because, and the reason for that is that most pe- there are a lot of people who are just sort of mowed down. Right. But there are so many like weird, unique kills. Like I think probably pretty high on my list would be the uh, in the warehouse scene. Wait, when wait, the wait, guy. wait, wait! I want to guess okay. this one. I want to guess this one because it right. might be one of my three. All right, is it the okay. one where Mad Dog just rides his bike right into him into the truck? <laughs> yeah. Okay, that is one of my three as well. <laughs> Such a good one. Okay, it's okay, to, to paint the picture for everyone. There's a uh, like a big uh like a U-Haul type truck. Yeah, yeah. And there's a car in front of it and Mad Dog drives his motorcycle up on the car and flies into the back of the truck and smushes a guy against a bunch of boxes yeah. with his motorcycle. Uh, it's, it it isn't as fascinating as he oh he rides up a car. It's set up as a ramp essentially. Yeah. But it doesn't change the fact that he literally just like rides full speed, I should add, right into a dude uh, in in the back of a truck (laughs) into boxes and squishes him. And I think there was an explosion in there as well, probably because boxes explode. A lot of explosions. (laughs) Maybe that's a whole different segment, favorite explosion. But yeah, so that's one of my three. Um, I would say the second one, Johnny Wong, because it was... It was, oh, dude, that was a satisfying payoff for the entire film, you know, and like we talked about how there's a method to the madness and how everything happens for a reason sort of thing. Uh, One thing John really likes to do is he likes to set up a move or, you know, just an instance, which he will go back to later on in the films. Uh, This is actually one of them where like uh, Chai, in fact, kind of like aims a gun and like, you know, just shoots him right through the eye. It's fucking fantastic. And uh, I would say well, the no, it's like he he aims the gun at the guy yeah. and then he like he puts the gun down by his side again and he has yeah. this weird like squinty eye twitch thing and then he like brings which, the gun up real fast. Yeah, which is the that. thing you do when you're like trying to aim with just your eye sort of thing. Uh, but it's it's the exact same move that he does when they're like trapped underground of the hospital where the weapons are hidden. Uh, yeah. In this shockingly futuristic looking cell, I guess. I don't Yeah, it's it's a nice payoff. Um, also, like, after just, what, like, 90-something minutes of just, like, tireless, tireless murders. Like, it's a very satisfying end to this film. Um, yeah. And I would, the, the first, like, you know, what, the last of the three, I should say, uh, was the one that I mentioned right off the bat, is the one where he's, like, giant fat is completely covered in flour, and he shoots the guy, <laughs> yep. and he just goes red and, like, re- covered in blood, and, yeah, just this, the imagery is just fucking beautiful from that, you know, and, like, the way he flies into the scene and all that stuff, yeah, it's, just, it's fantastic. 307 um, I think, people dead in this film, but yes, go ahead. I, I think probably another one... I'm not sure if it would make the list because the thing is, I, I remember there being one kill in the hospital near the end yeah. that I thought was really, really entertaining. We can do and honorable I think mentions. 
but I think it was just like one of the miscellaneous guys, and I don't remember exactly um, how he died. So I'd have to go through that scene and watch it again. But another one that I really enjoyed was um, the one. It's in the warehouse again, and there's a motorcycle that like somehow like flies through the air at Chao Yun Fat. But by this point, Chao Yun Fat has the shotgun, so the shotgun rules in effect. Yeah. So he just like takes takes aim and like fires while the bike is in midair, and the entire thing explodes. Which and is that makes, yeah. That makes no sense, and it's awesome <laughs> let's make sense out of it if he hits the gas tank with the bullet it might happen gas gas tanks on top of the bike though yeah he's looking at the bottom of the bike there is well, no way that maybe maybe he curved the bullet all right he's fucking inspected steel. don't <laughs> no. fucking this is not wanted <laughs> <laughs> um but the well, point is like even even though i know it's ridiculous like i still love it it's yeah. so fun to watch yeah, uh, one more bit of trivia, since you mentioned Wanted, and it's kind of a movie with a game itself. There is actually a sequel to Hard Boiled. Uh, it's a video game. It's known as Stranglehold. Um, I've played that. It's a, it's a fun game. It it's is. not it's not like the greatest game, but it's a genuinely fun game. Uh, the reason I bring it up is because we, we live in an era of high definition, and you know everybody wants like every fucking class of film in high def. That was also me. Uh, it still is me. And for the longest time, Hard Boiled actually wasn't available in high def on Blu-ray, um, except for one way. If you bought the collector's edition of Stranglehold, it came with the Blu-ray version of Hard Boiled. Uh-huh. And because it was the only way to get the Blu-ray version of that movie, the collector's edition prices were insanely high on eBay and things like that, which for what was a aver- an average to good game, kind of shocking. Seriously? Yeah, well, dude, shit. Like, made, I wish like, I'd known that. Yeah, like, My dad for years. Stranglehold when it came out. <laughs> but do you, do you know if you bought the collector's edition? Because that's the only one that came with the Blu-ray. Oh, okay. No, yes. I don't. Uh, for those who still want to go and find this for their collection purposes, it's the collector's edition has the case where I think it's more black than it is red. But yeah, it's been a while since I've looked up those cases. Uh, but yeah, Hardball 2 is a thing that happened once before. Um... Oh man, there is so much trivia, dude. <laughs> okay, you know what? We're gonna go back to the hospital, and I'm just gonna gonna, gonna go in order of how I wrote these things down. Um, okay, but one one thing I want to say about about yeah. the hospital though is that the end of the movie, huge spoilers. End of the movie is this massive shootout between gangsters who are inside the hospital and who have have taken patients hostage and they look like really infirm sickly patients too oh yeah they're not doing well you know what? and then Accurate there's also like, there's people, people repelling like swat guys repelling down the side of the hospital <laughs> like carrying babies and it's if you just hear that it sounds insane I, but the yeah. interesting thing is you can follow the logic of the movie. You can follow each one of the steps that got them to that place. And none of those things individually seem like totally... Out of nowhere. Yeah. You it, can see how it got there. Yeah. Which like, is I, I think is really interesting. It, it goes back to that thing, which uh, John Woo loves to set everything up in a film, right? Like th- yeah. there is a concise story being told with all these things, you know, and the reason uh, Chai and Fat ends up at the hospital is also well explained as well. Like there's just so much that works. Like, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's like a fucking engine, man. Like it is just like well-oiled machine, I guess. That's, that's the cliche that I'm going to use for this. Um, so to stick right. with the hospital, so, so let's, yeah, let's, oh, let's get into the trip. There, there is, there is so much. We're sitting at 41 this. minutes here. So, oh, it's going to be like an hour 41 by the time we're done with this. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the climactic scene in the film, uh, again, this is going to have a ton of spoilers. Um, 
be wary of this stuff. If you haven't watched it already, I highly recommend going and watching it. You know, pause this for a bit. There, paused, resumed. Cool. There, we gave you a bit of time. You know, <laughs> um, <laughs> you had your chance. <laughs> you had your chance. Now that you watch this movie, congratulations. Uh, one of the climactic scenes in the film is where Tequila is running down the hospital hall with uh, those electric wires to try and, I guess, j- Tarzan swing himself out trying... to safety from the window. Uh, yeah, I think he was trying to break his fall. Yeah, I think he was holding on to the wires to try and break his fall. Yeah, he was basically third story yes also because there was an explosion about to happen and more importantly yeah. there was a baby in his hand uh i'm talking about the baby baby not the gun that people can creepily call baby sometimes um <laughs> <laughs> so chai and fat did that scene himself all right problem with that john Wu didn't think there were enough explosions in that scene <laughs> so he asked special effects coordinator uh bruce law to give him the controls of the explosions and to make it seem more authentic he shot them off so quickly Chai and Fat almost got engulfed in it. He barely made it out. And once he got out, he was screaming, he's trying to fucking kill me or something like that. Sean <laughs> uh, Wu goes to apologize to him, checks the back of his like head and stuff, cinched, cinched from the explosions. And it's just this imagery, like there's no actual photo or anything for this, but this imagery of like Chai and Fat's just kind of like balding from the back because of like his head getting cinched is fucking brilliant. <laughs> There's there's a lot of this as well, right? Again, we go back to this idea of John Woo doesn't fuck around with like you know a script because it's just like this this is our budget. Uh, we want to shoot a film here. Let's just go and do it, sort of thing. That's John Woo, um, and like there there's again there's a ton from the hospital, uh, including minor things, right? Like he takes bits and pieces sometimes way more from films that he loves. Um, when we get to the killer episode, we will talk about that extensively. Uh, in this case, it's the rose box with the shotgun inside it, which actually was taken from a Stanley Kubrick film known as The Killing from the 50s. Also, Dog Day Afternoon had a scene like that. Uh, also, there was just a nice coincidence that Terminator 2 also had something similar around the same time this movie came out, although that wasn't an inspiration. It was just a coincidence. Um, all these guns that we're talking about, the shotgun, the, the magical shotgun that shoots explosions out and stuff uh hong kong has strict gun laws so basically all these guns that they wanted to use which ended up being over 200 guns uh they had to that's not hard at all to believe (laughs) yeah oh what else isn't hard to believe they ended up using over a hundred thousand rounds of ammo um which does make me wonder how gun-toting americans would feel about that bit of trivia and if they're like you know if they have john Wu posters up in their rooms and stuff step up america when i grow up (laughs) I want to be just like John Woo. Sorry, that's that's actually a bad accent. You know, the Sean Connery one is a good accent. That's a bad accent. Um, but yeah, the, the, the gun laws were so strict, they had to import these guns from England. Over 200 of them. No wonder they were running out of like the money that they had. In fact, their budget was so bad by, atten- by the time they got to that legendary hospital oneer scene. Um they basically had to shoot it in a day and a half since they didn't have much time also to work on it. And also that was one take. They had to get it right at one take. And the crew also only had 20 seconds to change the set between the elevator, like breathers, whenever they were like, when they were in the elevator sort of thing, just like imagining that makes me feel so demoralized as a guy who went to film school, like broadcasting school. Cause I can't imagine even getting to the, like the set from like the control room to there in 20 seconds. All right. Let alone fucking changing the yeah. entire thing in 20 seconds. Like imagine how many people were on set to do that shit. It's fucking nuts. 
Uh, also, more things about the hospital scene. There's just so much. Oh my god. Um, during the shootout between Alan and Mad Dog before Mad Dog meets his untimely demise, um, not at the hands of Alan, um, Tony Lung, the actor, took a shard of glass in his eye, uh, for which he oh, took Jesus. a whopping one day off. Comes back, finishes the film with no problems. Talk about a hard-boiled fucking actor. <laughs> like, that yeah, is, God damn. <laughs> yeah, like, that is the definition of badass. Like, you know, just, I don't know how severe the shard of glass is, but let me just tell you, I am milking the fuck out of a shard of glass in my eye if that ever happens, right? Like, I'm going to wear yeah. an eye patch for, like, the year after that and just have a cool story to tell. Like, this guy comes back in a fucking day and does shit with, like, no problems, apparently. Like, it's it's nuts. So that's like the hospital stuff, all right? Um, this movie, by the way, this movie that we ended up watching, because there was no script for it, um, and we also mentioned that the tea house scene was shot before there was a script, um, yeah. we almost had a completely different film because the original idea for Hard Boiled uh, is actually inspired by a real-life detective. Uh, we will get to that trivia very shortly after this. Uh, the story was supposed to be about this psychopathic villain who would have been played by Tony Long, uh, who was poisoning baby formula. But you know what? Shit is so wow. dark. Everybody was like, nah, fuck that. That's that's dark. Because like <laughs> the idea. Soon. Yeah. Too soon for what? To poison babies. It's 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 kind always going to be too general. soon. Yeah, it's just don't poison babies. Yeah, the sad that's, thing that's is that's the takeaway from this episode. Yeah, the sad thing <laughs> is John Wood does mention that in a ton of interviews that uh, the psychotic villain in the original script, what or in the original plot I should say, was inspired by a real life event, and knowing that actually happened is a very depressing thing. Um, yeah. The idea was, though, that Tony Long was supposed to play a guy who was supposed to represent the fall of kind of like Hong Kong values and, you know, cultural um, like values in society just kind of like in a downfall sort of thing. But uh, Chai and Fat, who, um, according to a lot of stories, even from John Woo himself, is just the consummate good guy professional on set, was just like, this would hurt Tony Long's character, like his career more so than character oh. and at that point everybody agreed and they're like no fuck that yeah <laughs> i mean yeah yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. Is, that is kind of a good point it, it is um... and the thing is though the interesting thing with this context is that when you kind of go back and watch this movie you can still kind of see a few things tony long does that would be fairly psychotic right like making origamis after like every person that he kills um <laughs> Like, he could easily have been called an origami killer or something. I actually think that's a thing. I don't know from where or, like, what part of history or what movie it's from. I don't remember. Yeah. And, yeah, and the thing is, like, that does happen to actors. I mean, granted, it was this was long, long before 1992, but uh, in the Fritz Lang movie um, M, Peter yep. Lorre plays a guy who, like, who basically kills little kids. Yeah. And uh, after the movie was released, Peter Lorre was, like, hunted in the streets by people who saw the movie because they they couldn't distinguish it from reality yeah um, so as much as we want to talk about like you know oh people have grown smarter over time that's not always the case and we are just talking about a film that like you want to kind of get you want to get a solid box office for it right and it was also coming out at a time where uh keep in mind that um john woo's first film or like one of his first big films bullets of the head was actually a critical and commercial failure like it did not do well because of like the series tones and stuff um and imagine making this movie as like you know another one in a time when people wanted more comedy from like 
the Hong Kong cinema, it would have just been like suicide, like career suicide on all ends. Um, to talk more about like script changes also, uh, this is actually a very adorable one. Uh, as is the case with John Woo films, he wanted Alan to have the staple heroic death. Like it, you see it in a lot of his movies. Like you know, there is a little bit of redemption that usually tends to happen between uh, or for these characters that are treading this line, yeah, but yeah, evil yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, uh, I'd read that too. This is very adorable though. The crew was so sad that uh, the character was gonna die that everybody kind of like pleaded with him to keep Alan alive at the end, and that's why they <laughs> added that additional scene right before the credits at the very end. And uh, good guy, John Woo. He listens to everybody. But that's also like another thing, right? Like every time you listen to John Woo talk, and I do highly encourage our listeners to actually look up some of his interviews on YouTube. There aren't too many, but the ones that are there, you can always kind of tell just how passionate he is about things and how eloquent he is as well, right? Like he knows exactly how he feels about these movies. He knows exactly how to vocalize it and it's fantastic like you listen to it and you feel that passion as well again to compare him to tarantino you feel that passion you appreciate it sort of thing and yeah man like the the script was kind of all over the place the thing is the funny thing is when we talk about like hollywood movies that are like that it's a fucking disaster right like you're like listen you're putting hundreds of millions into the movie you don't want to go in without a script um we will get to that again uh, very soon i there's still a bit of trivia to go through as well. Um, yeah, like, you know, just, I mean, because because of the way John Woo films things, he can make these changes. And because he makes these changes, a lot of times they do end up for the better as well. And this is definitely an instance where a lot of the choices that him and Chai and Fat and the rest of the crew made was for the better. So, yeah, like, you know, really appreciate that. Uh, a bit earlier, I mentioned that... Uh, detective or inspector tequila inspired by a real life detective there is actually an interesting trilogy of franchises that is inspired by detective steve toski who was the lead investigator on the zodiac homicides uh also going back to the whole there was supposed to be a psychopathic villain thing kind of makes sense why it would be inspired by that um detective steve toski inspired dirty harry steve mcqueen's bullet and inspector tequila that is really yeah that is a hell of a Jesus. Yeah, that that is that is as that that is one hell of a Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> that that is probably one of the most manly like trilogies of franchises ever. Like it's fucking insane. Yeah. So that that is most of the trivia for this film. Um yeah, one thing to go yeah. to go back to into that actually a bit is that um I wouldn't say that this is a film that is without problems or that couldn't be cut. You're fooling I mean, yourself. Are, this is a perfect well, film. Well, there are, there are bits perfect. that are that are sort of that are sort of like jarring, right? Like there's there's the bit where they're like trying to get out of this like locked basement gun warehouse below a hospital, and then they they stop to have this brief aside while perfect. they're like people upstairs getting shot. Like it it works because you just sort of accept that that would happen in this movie. I'm, um, I'm getting closer to my mic right now. Okay. Film is perfect. <laughs> Can't say anything to change my mind. But well, yeah, please, please continue on. Do I like um, what I think is well, what no, I think just... everybody should know I'm very biased with this film. 
like you know i'm very passionate about this in case they haven't been able to tell from the last almost hour worth of content <laughs> um but the thing to me though is that like to go back to those two opening shots like when you if you see those two shots like you know exactly what you're getting yourself into like the main character is guy who who's named tequila Fantastic. who like who plays flute in a bar while like smashing his gin and tonic on the counter which is something i've never understood i have always um, wanted to try that I don't because of this film, I don't mind see, you. I, 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 I get it. I, I sort of do too, but I just don't see what it would add. I imagine it's just to make <laughs> it go down easier drama. because of the fizzing, right? Because like at that point, it's just kind of like diluting it temporarily. I, I don't know. This is a guess on my part. If you guys can't tell, I'm not much of an alcoholic. Um, yeah, and you are. So shame on you. Like you know, you you. I wouldn't. I wouldn't chug a gin and tonic. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Alcoholic, not so anonymous. Sorry, oh, I'm, like, I'm, painting, I'm painting a bad picture of you. <laughs> <laughs> He's not really that alcoholic, folks. Um, just, you know, we drink. But, uh, the, so drink that much. <laughs> the, thing, though, the thing is, to me, that you accept that out of this movie. Like it's a movie where you can accept because there's there's atmosphere and I mean no matter how much the uh, the movie was improvised or no matter how much there wasn't a script I'd say that you can still see that there's a vision behind it like there's someone who definitely knows like this is gonna work this is gonna ha- how it's gonna happen and you can like you can understand that there's that presence behind it and with all that you're willing to accept all of this stuff. Sorry, I should I should add a little bit in there i guess since we have been saying oh there's no script for a long time uh when we say that we mean there's no script at certain points uh there's obviously like you know there will be a final script once they figured out like the solid ideas and stuff but essentially it's just the workflow is so radically different in that they start filming before a script is there or they can make these changes before the script is there sort of thing right so that's what it always sort of it always sort of seemed like um kind of like a the Judd Apatow sort of style of directing where you're willing to, to change things on the fly or like even the Monty Python style of directing where you're willing to change things on the fly and you just trust that the director knows what he's doing and the actors know what they're doing so they can make it work. You really don't cease to amaze me on. Like, <laughs> you compare movies to things that should never, like I never understand how you're comparing it to them. And <laughs> somehow you compare John Woo to Judd Apatow. Um, Yay! <laughs> holy shit! <laughs> done. All right, all right. I think, I think there's a good connection there. <laughs> if you say so, I. You know what? I've talked a lot, so I'm just kind of gonna give you the benefit of the doubt because we don't lie to our <laughs> listeners, I guess. Right, Yon? Uh, yeah, not often. Yeah, well, John Woo and Judd Apatow. Man, that is not what I expected to hear when we started this. Sh- this fucking talk. Oh, uh, Herzog was totally fine. Werner Herzog, yeah, yeah. That was actually a good comparison. Kudos on that. <laughs> fucking Judd uh, Apatow. Holy shit. Like, now I'm picturing <laughs> fucking Seth Rogen and James Franco in a hardballed remake. And it's, yes. oh my god, no. Fantastic. Fucking no. You, the movie everyone wants to see. You <laughs> son of a bitch. I think it was called The Dictator. <laughs> Fucking like Michael Sarah trying to, to, to like take on the Chow Yun Fat role. <laughs> oh god! Uh, you know well, that would be amazing. Amazing, or did we just figure out the one way we could ruin our boil? 
I, I think that's also a good cue to give our final thoughts on Hard Boiled. Um, I'm just going to sum it up in an easy way. It's fucking awesome. Go watch it <laughs> if you haven't already. Uh, despite us giving you time to go watch it in the middle of this episode, we really could have just made an entire episode out of this by itself. Um, Jan, anything you want to add before we move on from Hard Boiled? Well, <laughs> just because I made a note of it, because I think it's funny, is Absolutely. that this is this is by no means a final thought. It's just a it's thought just that I a thought. At okay. One point, is I always forget that there's a part where Chaoyun Fat gets lit on fire and then the baby pees on him to put it I, out. I really didn't want to spoil that for people because that is one of those things where it's it so funny. Just, yeah, yeah. I mean, fuck that. Like, it's it's oh, dude, dudes do that. <laughs> Go watch this movie. Come back, talk to us about it. It's fucking brilliant in so it's, many ways. Like, I mean, if nothing else, it's fun, right? It is. It's, it's a oh, fun, fun movie to watch. Fun movie. It just overwhelms you with, like, guilty pleasures. Like, you know, just, I mean, look, when we start, when we did the first episode of the show, we used, we talked about, like, we like stupid films, we like entertaining films, you know. Uh, the thing I don't like are average films. I don't like pretentious films. This is just so many of those things, though. Like, it, it's not average, obviously. Average it, and pretentious. Yeah, I know, right? So pretentious. <laughs> it's ambitious. It is an ambitious, ambitious film. Oh, yeah, sure. It's just fun to watch, and it's definitely something that kind of... Um, you can you can even appreciate as somebody who might not watch action films just because it is so over the top that it's sort of like a nice exaggeration of the ridiculousness of action movies in general. So I do definitely recommend it. Um, and as Jan mentioned, it's not a final thought, I guess. Uh, so you know, because every time I watch this movie, there's always something new that comes up that I'm like, oh man, that is so cool, sort of thing, you know. And I I just that's gonna keep happening, and that is truly the sign of what a great movie a perfect movie is to me at least um there will be other movies that i will be this passionate about i'm just not sure if i would ever be able to talk about a movie as long as we've talked about heartboiled well we are going to be moving on from this movie um one thing to mention as fantastic as we make this movie sound it actually bombed in the Hong Kong box office because of the reason that we mentioned earlier is that the audience wanted comedy films and studios were constantly pressuring John Woo to make a comedy film for a long time. Um, so really, you know, just the time that this movie came out in and things like that in Hong Kong, it was a bit of a disaster. But then John Woo kind of looks stateside. He looks to the West. He looks at how the killer yeah. did. He looks at how Hard Boiled did and he sees how much of a cult following they have. And in many interviews, or in an interview since then, he has mentioned that um, when he was going to the States, he was trying to sort of be ahead of the curve. He wanted to, because he felt like Hollywood was going to be coming to Hong Kong eventually. And he kind of wanted to go there, set the bar for it, like, you know, create a good foundation for directors in Hong Kong itself. Yeah, and he saw 20 years into the future on that one. He was totally correct. He was totally correct. (laughs) problem is he didn't last 20 years he barely lasted 10 years he didn't even last 10 years actually um he made a lot of questionable films average films confusing films really um you know one of them was fantastic again we'll save that for a later episode uh but (laughs) that's right we will yeah damn right we will Uh, in a (laughs) face-off with some other films if yeah um (laughs) we are here to talk about a broken film named broken arrow i see what you did there 
everybody sees what yeah. I did there. That's what I love yeah, about John, John Woo's. John Woo's nineteen. We're gonna skip right over the movie he made after uh, Which, the first movie. Yeah, he made in so Hollywood. the first movie he made Just, was called Hard Target, starring yeah. a coked out Jean Claude Van Damme. Um, if you don't believe me, there are several stories about that. Like, the, <laughs> you know, look it up. He was really coked out. Um, but yeah, so, I mean that one. That one suffered from studio meddling but from everything i've read john with the john woo 1996 movie broken arrow really suffered from studio interference yes which i think um, probably explains a lot about before we yeah so before we get into all of that stuff uh i just really want to say one thing um it's about to get a bit somber um <laughs> as, <laughs> as passionate as we were about Hard boiled. Uh, we are very depressed about Broken Arrow, <laughs> and um, which, is, which is kind of the, that, that's the reason I picked it, though. Is it? Yeah. it makes I think I think it makes the. I, I mean, we both love John Woo. We just both spent an hour talking about how incredibly over the top and crazy Hard Boiled is, and and that's indicative of a lot of his Hong Kong action movies. Is, and I think this movie makes the mistake that we both hate, in that it's so average that it's boring yeah even though there's crazy stuff that happens in it at the end of the movie like you like i don't i don't so, care <laughs> um to give a bit of context to our listeners um when we decide on what movies to watch we watch it a little bit earlier in advance give ourselves a little bit of time to gather our thoughts and things like that um this movie was so average. Mop up our almost, tears. Yeah. This movie was so average that I actually forgot some things that happened in it. So when I went back and looked at like my notes, like the rough notes that I made while watching the film, I actually didn't remember what some of those stood for. So I kind of had to like give it a second scrub through just to figure it out. That's kind of how boring and average it is. But the thing that depresses me the most about movies like Car Target and Broken Arrow is that because of what we just mentioned a bit earlier, you know, he got renowned and he was renowned in the West, John Woo was, because of Hard Boiled and The Killer. It's kind of our fault that Hard Target and Broken Arrow happened. Yeah, I think it totally is. So, you know, um, so, so to, thanks to, to us for fucking up a great career. <laughs> to, uh, to quickly introduce the movie, it's, yes. uh, it's a movie about... There's these two bomber pilots, and one of them is Christian Slater, and he's good, and one of them is John Travolta. No, no, correction, correction, correction. Uh, John Travolta is receding hairline. (laughs) (laughs) Is receding hairline evil. And um, basically, Travolta decides that he's going to steal a nuke and then blackmail the United States. And then he does that, and then it sort of, like, doesn't go so well for him, and then Christian Slater ends up... Saving the day with the help of a park ranger, um, played by uh, Samantha Mathis, and um, they're on a train at one point, and then it ends. Um. <laughs> well, okay, I wanted to mention, because you mentioned that you you had notes that you didn't understand for yourself. I, I the did, exact, yeah. The exact same thing happened to me. So what one of the notes, notes that just, I made... What a, <laughs> Okay, you first. Okay, let's see if we're again on the same path, right? One of the early notes that I made for the film was War Against Utah, and I forgot what it was about. And then, like, 30 minutes into scrubbing through the film, I realized, oh, right, I wrote that because there's, like, this fake, or, like, an exercise mission happening where, like, the um, Travolta and Christian Slater are 
flying this new plane with like nukes on them and they're essentially trying to avoid like um utah's defense yeah, I, think, I guess like they're trying to just go I, under the radar i guess which is weird because i think they're flying a b2 which is america's like famous stealth bomber that i yeah. think only it only started to be like known that it was a thing that america had in the 90s so it was really new and people yeah. knew it as a thing that could avoid radar but so I whatever guess, I, I guess to, to try and be positive about it at least ronwood did his research even though it might not have been the exact same plane i don't know I don't know, man. Like, something. Okay. So Christian Slater plays Captain Riley Hale, and Travolta plays um, Admiral Dick Deacons. Big Deacons. Did you call him Dick Deacons? Dick. Okay. See, Dick Deacons would have been a great fucking name. Yep. They screwed it up. Yeah. Because then we could have sung, like, Duck Dodgers in the 21st and one half century, but Dick Deacons. Yeah, we, and we could have just called him Dick through the entire thing. Yeah, because he is quite the fucking dick. Man, missed opportunity, John Woo. Missed opportunity. Oh, man. Okay, so where do we start with this movie now? And this is kind of like the opposite problem, where it's like, we don't know where to start because there's not really much to say. Well, one of <laughs> two of my notes, just off the top. One of them is just, they have a man named Giles. And then yeah. the other one, the one that I don't understand is um my last note before I get into my like personal thoughts about it okay. is just to quote the shot of the deer fucking really <laughs> but I don't know what that's in reference to I don't I think, oh, man. I think there's a bit at the end where there's a deer and I think it's like deer is like being all friendly and they're doing the like Schwarzenegger introduction from Commando thing where they're like look they're so nice that deer like them but I don't remember that I I fucking don't remember that either. So I don't I don't know the fucking you might be making this up. Um That's sort of totally possible. Yeah. I yeah. could have been watching Commando by accident. Totally. Our listeners, um go watch this movie. Uh if only no, because we want other don't, people don't. to share in our misery with us. Don't you do know? it. It's not worth it. No, it's it's totally worth it. You've got it. your whole life ahead of you. No, it's totally worth it. I mean if you want to feel good about yourself, um just go and look at John Travolta's receding hairline. I don't know why that would make you feel good about yourself, actually. Maybe maybe then look in the mirror and look at your hair. And if it's better than his, there you go. You feel better about yourself. Congrats. Um, I did want to quickly mention, every movie... Worse, you need to cover that shit up. Yeah. Every movie that Delroy Lindo is in, by the way, he just looks, like, stressed. And, like, he has the weight of the world on his shoulders. Like, every time. Even when he's laughing, like, you can see, like, the lines in his forehead... Like, it's just, I, I feel sad for him. <laughs> like, what is what is causing him this much pain? Tell me, Delroy Lindo. Tell me. I think... Uh, oh, bad. Okay, just to... Because we talked about the opening of uh, Hard Boiled a lot. And I think, in another interesting way, I think the opening of this is very indicative of what you're sort of getting yourself into. Because yeah. one of the open shots is a boxing match between uh, Christian Slater and John Travolta. And... Um, who has? Let me add. Had the worst fucking boxing form I have ever seen. <laughs> yeah. Like train a bit more before you shoot this film. Like holy shit, man. The thing is though that this starts a trend of stuff that happens through the entire movie, where because you're not you're not looking at a Hong Kong action movie, you're looking at a Western Hollywood action movie, and so you you expect there. I mean, there was a lot of committee interference. I mean, that's part of the the reason that this is unforgivable. Exactly. Is that they don't really think things through like for instance why would two pilots 
who are flying the most advanced bomber that the U.S. Air Force has and carrying nuclear weapons give each other concussions for fun the night before they're supposed to go on a flight with live nukes. <laughs> Why See, would that happen? I, to, to sh- I, I wasn't paying enough attention to the movie because that honestly just kind of went over my head. I didn't like right off the bat. I, I saw that shot and I saw the bad form of the two boxers, and I was like, "Yeah, okay, I could. I, I kind of get where this movie is going with this. Like, fuck, man. Fuck well, I mean, it's movie. an obvious setup. I mean, it's obviously a setup for like a fight that's going to happen at the end of the movie. But so, still, like, yeah, there's so much of that shit. That, and I ref- like it hard boiled. I I will not pick that movie apart because you know you just you accept it. You're in the universe. You're there. Whatever. This movie, like, no, they sh- someone should have known better. Yeah, um, that's that's the problem with average films. That's the problem with boring, bad films, right? Like, you're going to dissect those way more than anything else. And to kind of, like, you know, just go back to one of the – a couple of the genre staples, the, it, again, he sets something up with the purpose of paying it off later on in the film, right? And it, that is a positive. I do at least appreciate that you still see some John Woo-isms come into this movie. But at the end of the day, uh, there are just yep. so many different, like – too many cooks spoil the broth, right? Uh, that happened yeah, with this. Yeah, uh, exactly. This is actually the second film in a row where there was so much studio interference. Um, I mean, from everything that you would read, Hard Target was bad. Broken Arrow was apparently much worse, like you mentioned, uh, to the yeah. point where the original cut was closer to like two hours, and I think they ended up cutting like a shit ton of that film. Um, yeah, which is like if you're gonna if you're gonna hire a director who has a really specific style and really knows how he wants to do a movie you can't like tear it apart and then put it back together and cut huge chunks out of it and tell him what to do and expect it to be a good movie yeah like if you're gonna do that then get a different director see john would be a perfect fucking fit for the new dc films in that case then because he just lets people get their heads (laughs) all into them um yeah so stick to one depressing thing at a time yeah i know right (laughs) fuck So, Broken Arrow, you mentioned the story, uh, you mentioned kind of what happens with the stuff. Uh, We should mention there are two nukes, one of them actually fucking goes off, and there's like zero fucking impact from it sort of thing. You know, like, a nuke just went off. Like, think of the severity of that situation. And in any other film, like, I I feel like if a nuke went off and hard-boiled for some inexplicable reason, I would even question that. Like... It's just a new yeah. fucking went off, you know. Like that is not something. Did, to... Oh yeah, I guess. Because yeah. I don't remember. I don't remember if the uh, if they actually primed the, the warhead <laughs> and then it went off, or if it, if they just detonated it. Because there is they, a difference if you don't. Yeah, I guess. So I think if they because if you actually prime the warhead, then the uh, the chamber functions properly and the implosion mechanism functions properly. But if you just blow it up, then you have an explosion, but not like a nuclear explosion. I promise and, our um, listeners, Jan only read up on this because of this episode. He is <laughs> not some secret spy or something like that. I love that this entire uh, like segment for Broken Arrow has just ended up being us two filling in the gaps for each other. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're so, just so unenthusiastic. Yeah, we're just kind of like patching it together for each other. But that's kind of what this movie inspires. Like, there isn't yeah. much to remember. And like, there is footballer howie long who is now a color commentator slash analyst for fox sports during like sunday football i guess um speaking of like studio interference apparently they were so impressed with his like dailies that they added like way more of him into the final film uh which i don't know how john feels about that but 
like again like you know studio interference saves the fucking day i guess i don't know it's really stupid um they do that thing by the way that we mentioned in the last episode where they say the name of the film that's the name of that movie they fucking say yeah. broken arrow in it and i got hype that was the one moment in the movie that i remembered because i fucking get hype for those situations except that a broken arrow doesn't mean a lost nuke <laughs> it actually doesn't want to describe yeah. when they want to describe a lost nuke i think it's empty quiver yeah, but empty quiver broken, wouldn't sound. Broken as arrow means, if, if my memory serves, means a um a nuke that has detonated, but there hasn't been like massive casualty, something like that, or maybe Look, so that yeah. the, well, the actual nuke hasn't gone off. But the it doesn't is, like, it doesn't cause a state of war. I believe that's what broken arrow is. It's like swing and a miss. <laughs> yeah. All I'm saying is it's kind of like the quickening, right? Like you, you, it sounds cooler, so you kind of go with broken arrow. Yeah, I guess. Nah, it's a fucking movie. Like you can kind of get it. Come on. We we got to be a little positive about this. You're too harsh. No. You're too harsh. I don't want it. <laughs> you know, there's. Look, I am gonna look at the positives. All right. I mean. No, yeah, yeah. Okay. There's fancy okay. looking rocks in there. Because there's That's really true. nothing else to admire. Like you know, they have like nice looking fake rocks in that underground chamber where they detonate the nuke. You know. And they have sweet CG. Yeah, the brown is nice. <laughs> it's a nice shade of brown. Um. <laughs> And there's the tagline for the movie. The brown is nice. <laughs> no, um, it's nice shade of brown. In all honesty, though, I, I was a big fan of the helicopter sequence in the beginning where um, like some of Travolta's cronies kind of go and try and find Christian Slater and Slater just like fucking shoots a bullet right through the helicopter glass, which should probably have been bulletproof, but let's ignore that stuff. Uh that, that was that was over the top. I liked it. I thought that was really neat. And if they had kind of followed yeah. the the pacing of that, I feel like it would have been a better film. It's just that there were so many dead moments in between some cool moments that yeah. it just feels disjointed. Like even the the end sequence on the train, it had potential, right? Like it's a unique like I, I think we need to separate the concept of this film from the actual film itself because the concept is very unique even by today's standards and it's very interesting especially by today's standards yeah. i should say because everything nowadays is the same shit i also love that they're fucking going up against like he's gonna set off a nuke in utah of all the fucking american states like could, could like Where seriously he, he was headed towards like he was headed towards salt lake city and then denver no yeah i think it was like he was he was like the, the yeah, yeah, yeah. He was headed towards Salt like and he was actually headed towards denver yeah something like that and like it's such a weird Midwestern thing directed by John Woo that it's just like, wow, this is weird enough to maybe work sort of thing, right? But then it's just bland, you know, and yeah. it doesn't work as well. And unfortunately, like, you know, just the potential is never met. I Yes, like, there is studio interference, but I don't think you can take a lot of the blame away from John Woo as well, right? Because ultimately, uh, like, keeping in mind that, you know, you're coming from a culture, a... Uh, an industry where you've spent almost 20 plus years of your life uh, making yeah. films. Suddenly you have to learn new culture. You have to understand what works for the studios here and things like that. You have a way bigger budget, like in comparison to Hardboiled. Hardboiled, I think was made in 4 million. Um, this movie had 55 million on its budget. Um, I guess the contrast there also is that Broken Arrow actually made 150 million worldwide. So it made its money back. Um, whereas Hardboiled, they might have made the money back, but it was still a failure. Um, so bigger budgets don't always mean better movies. 
But, like, you know, to kind of understand those things takes some time. So we understand that stuff. But this is a second movie. He should have learned a lot of things from Hard Target. Uh, the studio should have learned a few things. But, I mean, it's futile to blame the studio for any of this stuff. Because, like, you know, when do they ever learn sort of thing, right? I think the blame has to be, sp- uh, like, you know, spread out, though, right? Because, ultimately, there's just so many things about this movie that doesn't work. It is a very scripted yeah. thing, you know? Like, the dialogue doesn't work as well here. The camaraderie between the two... Uh, doesn't work as well and i think for that you have to go back no, because to... it's christian slater being nice and travolta being a dick for the entire thing exactly just, like and... why are they supposed to be friends <laughs> yeah like you never ever ever feel like they're supposed to be friends like even after the boxing match like i think that's what the boxing match was like the sparring session was supposed to be between the two it never comes across yeah. as that and yeah. like that's why like you know a lot of the typical genre tropes actually don't end up working as well right so like we ask this question now why didn't the film work um one of the quotes from john Woo himself uh he gave this in tokyo some time ago um to like you know just to to use that quote itself hollywood is about fame money power these are the key elements to him and he he was not a fan of movies that were um I guess, for lack of a better term, directed by the actors and not the director themselves. Like, you know, just everything revolves around the actors. And he wasn't a fan of that. And he shouldn't be, you know, because he's made a career out of kind of making his movies, his signature on the films. And suddenly you come into an industry where uh, the focus is put on um, Jean-Claude Van Damme, focus is put on John Travolta, things like that, right? So, like, that's one of the things. Then, like, you know, there's a few other questions to answer about this as well. We talk about John Woo tropes, right? Did it have those disturbed doves? Did it have the two guns, no look shooting sort of thing? Which, I mean, it didn't have the no look shooting, but it had like the dual gun thing going for it. Was there a Mexican standoff? Yeah. Was Broken Arrow Gun Fu? Not quite. It had some of the some of the sort of stylistic things that you do expect from John Woo. Like it it did have like the half slow mo. But um, it was it was all style and no substance because yeah. there's no combination of the two. Because ultimately, if you don't feel for these characters, what is going to make you truly appreciate the film, right? And we referenced this a little bit earlier, the uh, tribute essay written by John Woo to um, Jean-Pierre Melvy, or Melvy. Um, he basically says, in Melville's films, there's always a thin line between good and evil. This is a direct quote. His characters are unpredictable. You never know what they're going to do next, but it's always bigger than life. You cannot use any formula, any moral standards to sum up his heroes. Um, let's use this for villains as well, because John Travolta really kind of steals the show um, for maybe bad reasons, because sure, you know what? Uh, you never know what he's going to do next. He is bigger than life, but ultimately it's formulaic, and that's where the key well, problem I thought he. I thought he really hammed the hell out of this part. And I should mention, this was a year before uh, the one good John Woo film in which John Travolta also was there in a face-off <laughs> of sorts. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, just like he does ham it up. I understand that. But when you take a look at a lot of his John Woo's films from Hong Kong as well, if yeah, like if a Western actor were to do the exact same things that those actors are doing, it would come across as hammy because of the cultural difference, right? Or like yeah, just a preferential yeah. differences because the audience who watches a Hong Kong film expects that from uh, Hong Kong and Chinese actors. Um, it's not expected from like John Travolta until this film. 
it's not expected from Christian Slater sort of thing. Uh, Chai and Fat is a very charismatic person. Like, you know, you get, even when he's being a badass and hard-boiled, there's just moments where, like, he hams it up a little bit, and it works because yeah, like, yeah. he's he seems like a genuinely likable person despite all the murders. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and there's the tagline for that movie. <laughs> Like that's the asterisk. Actually, no, the, like the, giant bats tag- despite yeah, all I mean, the, the tagline. Yeah, the tagline they used actually was perfect. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> fuck. Um, but yeah, like you know, we, again going back to this quote, it's formulaic. You know, there is a clear cut good guy and a bad guy. There is nobody treading the line of good or bad. And unfortunately, what ends up happening because of that is you have a lot of heavy-handed dialogue which doesn't actually serve a purpose because you already know which side of the spectrum both characters stand on. Um, in fact, there is an entire exchange between um, John Travolta and Christian Slater, like, you know, in between that stone wall that gets set up in this pretty brown room underground. That, <laughs> that like, you know, it, it, he essentially straight up calls him a psychopath, right? Like, there is no, like... There's no wiggle room to say that's treading any kind of lines. Like, he's a fucking psychopath. And, he, he, yeah, well, like, you don't, you don't though, get that conflict. You, you don't get the moral, like, you know, conflict between these characters. But also, I mean, that, that is a way that you can do a villain. If you're doing a movie, you can you can set up a character who is, like, re- like beyond all reason evil. Sure. Like, they're just, like, well, sort of, like, cartoonishly super villain evil that sure, sort of thing like sure. you, just, you can make someone like evil that's their entire thing they're just like an insane evil person and you can make the audience hate them the thing that i really thought that i mean that didn't stand out and it should have is that you want to see travolta die but you don't want it a lot you, you know what you actually get you it actually, out of the way yeah well you kind of remind <laughs> me like oh for fuck's sakes just like die Honestly, so though, we can move on. Honestly, though, you kind of reminded me. He he also has a nice death in this movie. Um, it's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a pretty neat way. We won't tell you how he dies, but it's cool. Um, I actually don't. Yeah, like there there aren't too many cool. Moments. Yeah, let's just leave that but, one alone. <laughs> yeah, but to but to again discuss why do these uh, John Woo films not work as well? Right, like we're not going to talk about all of his Western films. We are talking about Broken Arrow here, and to use this quote in this context. Could you really call Captain Riley Hill, played by Christian Slater, morally ambiguous as a protagonist? Is there really a thin line between Travolta's Vic Deacons and Riley Hill? Um, could and like there's another thing, you know, in that when you watched Inspector Tequila and Alan work in Hard Boiled, you know, in the more intimate kills, the more meaningful kills, they look tormented. Like you know, there is always a bit of a pain and a bit of sadness in their characters. I know a lot of the listeners are listening to this and they're like, "Are you fucking serious? Three hundred and seven people died in Hard Boiled, yet you're talking about getting intimate with these." I understand that. Watch the movie if you haven't, and then you kind of get where I'm coming at with this. And taking that, could you really call Riley Hale a tortured person? Like, the funny thing is, these are the two people they focus on, and yet the one person who personifies a lot of this morally ambiguous John Woo protagonist is uh, the lady. Uh, the name of the character is Terry, played by... Yeah. Samantha, Samantha Mathis. Yeah, Samantha yeah. Mathis. And Samantha Mathis is... She's good in this movie, you know. She she yeah, has a role in this film. She honestly, I feel like she plays a way more prominent role in this movie than Christian Slater really does. And yeah, like ultimately, yeah, 
ultimately she is probably the closest thing to what a John Woo character is. Like, you know, a John Woo tormented yeah. protagonist is because she like it's it's not edited well and it's not told well, but in concept She's this park ranger. Uh, she is hearing that, like, you know, this Riley Hale guy is a fugitive sort of thing, and she's supposed to arrest him, but she has to decide between helping him out or following the law sort of thing, right? So that conflict is there, and it could have been exploited if she were the main character. She wasn't. Yeah, I was going to mention, I don't, I don't think it would take a huge amount of rewriting to make her the main character. Like, it wouldn't the, the even take a lot of focus. free anything. And I think... Yeah, and I think it would have been a more interesting movie because at least with her, you can also put her in the point in the seat of like take Christian Slater, make him like a sidekick, make him a guy who can like kill stuff, yeah. but make her the like the fish out of water, and she's the one who's pushed into this horrible scenario that she shouldn't be in, and she's the one who has to try and figure it out. Like that would have been more interesting. Yeah, and like you even take a look at like her backstory. The only backstory that we really get for her is that she's a cat lady. She lives with cats at home. <laughs> and, like, you know, that's that's another thing about John Wick protagonists. They're not cat ladies, but they're isolated. Um, you know, like, there there's this notion that if they die for the greater good sort of thing, like, no one's going to know that they existed sort of situation. And it's a yeah. little bit of that on a much less darker scale with uh, Samantha Mathis here. So, like, you know, th- th- that, that character exists. It's just the character is not the focus of this stuff. And ultimately, the focus of this stuff are two extremely one-dimensional characters whose relationship is very confusing at best and and, dumb and dumb (laughs) and it doesn't work yeah you know we we took 20 30 minutes to say what we could say in one sentence it doesn't work but it doesn't you know and any last thoughts on this yon before we wrap up this week's episode yeah one thing i kept i'm not sure how it would have ended out but I would have liked to have seen a John Woo movie where he was just allowed to do whatever the hell he wanted with this. Like, just free him of all the studio meddling, give him a big budget, um, tell him, you can go do crazy stuff with your movie, we're not going to touch it. I would have loved to have seen what would have come out of that. You know, there is I'm one not thing sure I would have liked it, but yeah. I would have... I would have respected it a lot more. There is one thing I've always been meaning to look up that I've never had a chance to, but apparently there is a... Um, Please don't steal movies and stuff like that. We should always put that disclaimer out there. Pay for these movies. But there is a bootleg version of the director's cut of Hard Target out there, apparently. And I've always been curious about what makes it so different. And there are some people who do live by that version and say it's significantly better. But again, I'm, I'm not like you know betting on that too much. But yeah, Hard Target, a movie for another time as well. Uh, this week, we talked about Hard Boiled and Broken Arrow. A long episode. When we started this uh, entire concept of expositions, we told ourselves we're going to keep this to 45 minutes. Um, yeah, I, I think we knew that we were going to spend a long time on... I, I think on. so, too. I think so, too. And uh, we yeah. might we, we might name these episodes something different down the road, like, you know, some cheesy-ass shit like Director's Cut or something a bit more clever. I don't fucking know. You can call this one the long one. The long one, <laughs> yeah. No, but rest assured... For as long as we keep doing this, uh, we are going to keep coming back to John Woo films because yeah. his his career trajectory to me has always been the most fascinating. As uh, as an Asian man who comes into a Western sort of society and like you know to see what went wrong and to see what the Eastern inspirations are, you know, in many ways he was trying to be the Melville of the West, right? Where 
like what Melville did quite a bit was he took a lot of uh, Eastern. Uh, Maybe like, we should you know, stick to calling it Melville because uh, whenever yeah. you say Melville, I think Herman Melville. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> nope, we are now totally calling it Melville from now on. <laughs> oh, great. All right, so Melville it is. Uh, sorry, John, <laughs> we just <laughs> we just ruined your icon for you. Uh, but yeah, like, you know, it, it almost feels like John was trying to be sort of like the Melville of the West in the sense that I guess Melville was the Melville of the West, but um, he was trying to kind of follow that career trajectory and that like, you know, he wanted to bring that Eastern influence to the West, uh, just in the way Melville used to do with the beginning of his films as well. Um, unfortunately, his career didn't work out like that. And we will look into that a whole lot more. It's not going to be directly in the next episode. Don't worry. You're not going to be getting some four-parter on John Woo or anything like that. We'll just come back to him time time after time and, you know, whenever we feel like it. But you know what? Until next time, thank you for joining us on this super, super long, super awesome third episode of Expositions. Yay! Um, Yeah, I think we're... Yeah. Yeah, I think we're going to have to start picking some shitty films to watch because we've been kind of going through some good Maybe movies very quickly. Shitty films to watch. <laughs> Just watch fucking Broken Arrow. How <laughs> much <laughs> shit do you want to get? <laughs> I, uh, okay, okay, fair. You know what? You got me there. Um, There's a reason yeah. I didn't pick one yeah. of the other really good John Woo movies. <laughs> as, as always, you know, uh, make sure to like and subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, drive safe safe, i guess if you're listening to this you know don't drink milk while listening to this because we might make you spit it out your nose spray it out your nose from anger from anger yeah (laughs) or you might just like crush the carton of milk and like you know the milk's gonna be all in your car and then the milk's gonna go sour and it's gonna shoot up into the air and then you'll like spin around and pull out two guns in slow-mo and it'll be awesome should try that actually and i just and I just picture. Go try people, that, kids at home. Yeah, I just picture the people in the car listening to this, like crushing the milk cart, just screaming out, "Melville!" <laughs> Sorry, Herman. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being here this week, Jan. Thank you. Oh, you think? <laughs> Later, guys. Ready. Hey everybody, if you're a fan of the show and would like to continue to support us, please like and subscribe our podcast on iTunes or look us up on SoundCloud using Exposition. We would like to give a huge shout out to the extremely talented Steely Chan, the Vancouver-based DJ sibling duo who created the hype music for our show, and please give them a follow on SoundCloud and Facebook at Steely Chan, that's S-T-E-E-L-Y Chan. Also, you can find them on Twitter at ST. 33LY Chan. A big thank you also goes out to Jackie Lee for designing our logo. Be sure to check out her website, JackieLeeArt.ca. That's J A C K I E L E E Art.ca. You can also follow her work on Instagram at Jackie Drinks Coffee. And lastly, thank you, the audience, for giving us a listen. And if you'd like to join in on the conversations, you can follow us on Facebook at Exposition or on Twitter at Explosions, that's with an S at the end, where you can also stay up to date on the latest news surrounding our podcast. And we look forward to hearing from you.